1: Hello, and welcome to What to Say When Things Get Tough, a podcast dedicated to helping you communicate effectively in difficult situations, both professional and personal. I'm your host, Leonard S. Greenberger. Both Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton elevated trade issues on the campaign trail in 2016, and they've remained high on the nation's collective agenda ever since. Most people outside the agricultural sector probably don't know it, but we export more agricultural products than any other country on earth. And, just because I found it surprising, I thought I would share with you that the number two country is the Netherlands. We're joined today by a longtime friend and client, Melissa Kessler. Melissa is the Director of Strategic Relations at the U.S. Grains Council, and we sat down to discuss what this unprecedented focus on trade over the last three-plus years means in terms of communications, challenges, and opportunities. And one quick show note, Melissa refers to CAFTA, which I neglected to ask her to define, CAFTA is like NAFTA, the trade agreement, except it covers Central America rather than North America. And it's gone through some evolutions over the years, but I'll leave it there. Enjoy. I like to start off by asking my guests their origin story. You know, how did you come to get involved in communications generally and the ag business more specifically.
2: My origin story, I think is one of happenstance. I studied journalism, Um, I was a journalist in college, luckily had the opportunity to study it even in high school. And I think figured out that there were not going to be so many jobs in journalism going forward, and was looking for something else to do, and happened into, between my junior and senior year, doing an internship at the National Association of Wheat Growers, and very much you know chose to do that for couple key reasons, my boyfriend lived in town and it was paid and not not high-minded things and ended up going back and being their communications director for eight years. And that really was my introduction to ag communications as a field. I grew up in a more rural state, but not on a farm and into professional communications and PR and crisis management also. So very much wandered into it based on experience. And it's one of those reasons I encourage everyone to do as many internships as possible. You never know where you're going to land.
1: And you went from the wheat growers to the grains council.
2: I did, yeah. Um, so while I was at the Wheat Growers, I did a master's degree in organization development. Most people have no idea what that is, but it's basically process and how groups work together and how work gets done. And consulted for about a year after the Wheat Growers and knew folks, obviously, throughout the ag industry. And one day, a colleague at the grains Council called up and said, hey, I'm moving to one of our overseas offices. Do you want my job? And I said no a couple times and then finally decided this is going to be really interesting and so might as well. Um, and it did. It turned out to be incredibly fascinating working on the comm side. And then as we got into, you know, much kind of more intense conversations about trade policy and how that's impacting our industry around the 2016 election and after the 2016 election and moved into a different role in 2018 to be able to focus more on that side of things and do things that really cross over different pieces of our organization in addition to just communications.
1: Well, over the years as we've worked together, I have a sense of what the U.S. Grains Council does and what it represents, but maybe you can explain it for those who don't know the organization.
2: Yeah, so the U.S. Grains Council is, we call it an export market development organization, which doesn't necessarily explain things to a lot of people. You know, the U.S. produces an enormous amount of agricultural commodities of all kinds. We're a very, very productive nation. Estimates are we produce enough food for 2 billion people and we have about 330 million people living here. And you know, much of that is exported. So we, organizations like mine, we focus on building long-term demand for agricultural products. There are about 70 organizations like ours in different commodities, we do feed grains. So corn, sorghum, barley, grains that animals eat, Uh, as well as ethanol, which is a product you can make from both corn and sorghum quite efficiently. And we work in 50 countries around the world to try to help people understand why they would use these products, how to use these products, how to buy and Sell because, of course, we're talking about physical commodity. So you actually have to like get it there, these products. And, you know, that really looks a lot like much other marketing, right? So relationship building, trade shows, events. It also looks like technical education, contracting education. We've taught people how to use Excel. We've taught people how to use Zoom. Um, because we are working both with some very sophisticated players that have have grown over the years and with people in countries that are continuing to grow their economies and are just on the cusp of providing more and better food to their own citizens. And we want to be partners with them in that because that obviously helps the local population, it helps local industry, and it helps us because it creates demand overall for our products worldwide.
1: I know you've temporarily relocated to Oklahoma as a Mm -hmm. result of COVID, but the organization is based in Washington, D.C. But you have offices, I forget how many offices you have. Yeah,
2: so we, um, we say we work in 50 countries, but that sort of depends on the day and what's going on. We can work pretty much anywhere we need to. Um, we have standing offices, like doors you're going to open up in Japan, South Korea, China, Taiwan, and Malaysia, which is a regional office. We have someone in Singapore who runs a regional office for South Asia We have an office in Tunis, Tunisia, and an office in Panama City, Panama that are regional offices, and then we have an office in Mexico City. Um, We also have consultants all over. So we have very long-term consultants in India and Vietnam and Colombia and Morocco, most of the countries that you would see as large importers of U.S. grains over time, and then a lot of places where we hope that over time we can build those markets. Uh, And we travel as necessary, or we have prior to the COVID situation.
1: So you're moving grains, but you're you're also moving a lot of people around the world, or at least connecting a lot of people around the world. As an international organization like that, what kind of communications challenges have you faced and how have you met them?
2: (laughs) the reason i originally took this job is because i was like this is so interesting like it will never get more interesting than that and that has proved absolutely true and it's i think for a couple reasons and one is just the sheer volume of information that we're dealing with we are working in dozens and dozens of markets every day and so some days Even though, you know, I'm not really directly on the market development side of things. I'm sort of a bridge between different pieces. There are days it's like, okay, here's an issue with Vietnam and China and Colombia and Mexico. It's just like, where are we? And everyone in our organization has that to some extent. And then we have, you know, the interesting challenge of how do we connect those overseas customers who are really our target audiences with our members who are largely farmers and the, the staff that they have at the state level working for them. Those are the, the folks really putting up the money to do all of this work, which is then matched by federal funds. We do receive grants through the farm bill process and communicating with all of those audiences and really trying to connect that farmer in Iowa to a grain buyer in Taiwan requires you know, understanding both of their needs which are quite different in in some depth. And that's really what my team focuses on is translating those messages. And and it's complex, right? There's a lot of times the message that works for one group of people doesn't for another. Or a lot of times, you know, a message that we may want to put out to members is not something necessarily that's appropriate to spread all around the world on the internet, which we know is the environment we're communicating in. So we're really at a very high volume trying to be sensitive to the needs, to the cultural elements of a lot of different groups of people. Our membership is also very complex, even for organizations like ours, and that makes it... I think, challenging, but it also makes it really interesting and keeps us on our toes day to day and allows us to innovate in ways that if it were more straightforward, we wouldn't be pushed to innovate. And also, I don't think we'd ever even consider innovating in those ways.
1: Let, let's take the, uh, the the more recent challenges sort of in chronological order. So uh-huh. without making any political judgments, you know, three and a half years ago, President Trump came into office with some different ideas about how to handle trade and became a, the United States became much tougher. I, I know that impacted the ag sector quite a bit generally, and I assume that also affected you and raised some new challenges in communi- connecting your members with representatives in overseas markets.
2: Yeah, definitely. And when I think about this, I think back and i you know i wish i kept a more detailed work journal right because in during the 2016 campaign both presidential candidates talked about trade a lot compared to how often trade typically comes up in national elections and both had very specific opinions and both i think were very skeptical of trade policy in a lot of ways and that was notable because it was different but it was also you know notable just because it was so Prominent, which only increased after the election and after President Trump's inauguration. And from our perspective, as a, a an organization that only does trade policy and market development, I mean that is all we do. It it really did change a lot of things very rapidly. It changed, you know, time horizon we were forced to work on. I think it changed the amount of attention to our issues in really dramatic ways that we're still understanding and negotiating it kind of I, i've said before you know it's all of a sudden we became the pretty girl at the dance right people wanted to talk about trade before it was seen as this like long-term five ten fifteen year process kind of boring. People would become interested in it, but it was like certain people became very interested in it and it wasn't necessarily something you would expect to be in widespread communication. It was kind of nobody's top priority, if we're being honest. And let's face it, I mean, U.S. agriculture has played a huge role in the last several decades of this country's trade policy. I mean, truly it's played a huge role in all of our trade policy, but especially the last period of free trade agreements. Ag always had a role in getting those passed. I mean, I remember the CAFTA way back when, it's like, okay, what's the coalition working more on the domestic policy side, which we don't at the Greens Council. It's like, what's the plan to get this thing passed and how are we going to get votes? And Ag was like very deeply involved in that, very deeply involved in the Colombia, Peru, Korea, Cycle as well, NAFTA, huge, huge, huge thing in agriculture. So it wasn't that there wasn't an awareness of the importance of trade policy. I think it's that it was like, you know, it came up maybe every five years, there was an agreement, everybody needed to get excited about and vote on, we did some TPA and then we moved on, right? And now it's like, no, trade policy is a part of your daily life. And I think one thing we discovered is people didn't have as much information as they wanted, or as much information as, frankly, they needed to understand what all of these complex issues really are about and how to put the day-to-day news into some context of the bigger picture and what this means over time for them and their businesses. And that's a lot of the work that we've been doing, and frankly, a lot of the work that I've been doing over the last several years.
1: So it sounds like it's a new focus on trade policy, presented some opportunities for you to make some new connections and educate some people who maybe hadn't really been thinking about how important were you and, and other groups like yours that represent other ag commodities, the role they play.
2: Totally. I, I 2017 was the craziest year of my life, right? There's no denying that. But I think that goes for many people. You know, we, we got some gray hairs during that time. And, you know, this is for people who are true believers in the power of trade, which I mean, frankly, everyone I work with is. Otherwise, why would you be doing this work? To, to get out there and to talk about the importance of trade and talk about what this system, which, you know, America helped build the global trading system, truly. We are leaders historically there. Um, what that means to our industry, what that means to our country, what that means to our quality of life, and what that means to other countries where, you know, trade has helped improve the standard of living and has a lot of potential to continue it if done in a thoughtful way, and so it has been sort of wild. Um, and at the, on the other hand, it's like great—we have this massive opening that we could never have created on our own. Let's take advantage of it.
1: Well, and I would think twenty seventeen was a crazy, maybe it was the craziest year of your life. I would imagine, well, for many people, until this year.
2: Right. Yes.
1: <laughs> I was watching uh, Meet the Press last night, catching up, and they had the mayor from South Bend, uh, Pete. Judge. Thank you, Peter Judge and he was talking about how he won the Iowa caucuses, you know, back in, I guess it was late January. Remember, that was this year. That was only six months mm-hmm. ago. And who even remembers that there were primaries and caucuses going on that short amount of time ago. So as a group that operates globally, how did the onset of COVID, how's that affected the way you communicate and, and make those connections? it
2: been- really interesting because on one hand i'm tempted to say not at all which is you know obviously not the case and on the other hand it's changed everything which is also not the case like it's very much in between i think as an organization that is global we have offices and people all over the world we were very well into some communication technologies that i think are really new for a lot of people these days so we are we used video chats we used whatsapp is like the lifeblood of our organization obviously we have good email we have you know a sharepoint system that type of thing and phone calls like we're all walking around with international cell phones which is a huge innovation i mean that's a life-changing thing in this type of work and so we weren't totally unaccustomed to working in what we would call now a virtual environment. And we were also accustomed to being able to actually see each other and travel and be able to interact at least on a regular basis. We did have a meeting in February just before all of this really went into lockdown our China director had already come back and but staff from all over the world were able to come in and I I look back on that and think that was a really good thing because I don't know when we're going to be able to do that again but truly the the initial kind of U.S. piece of it was very focused on reassuring our customers and providing them the information that they needed and providing our, our sister organizations on the domestic industry and the domestic side of things, the information they needed to ensure that continued flow of grain. I mean, people buy from the U.S. for a lot of reasons. We have a high quality product. We typically at a good price. We're a very abundant producer. But the truth is, we're very reliable. Um, you write a contract with U.S. seller and that grain will arrive. And this was a situation where all of a sudden it was not clear what was going to happen with any supply chain in the whole world. I mean, we were all thrown into disruption pretty much around the same time. And so for the first couple of weeks, a lot of the work was just making sure we knew ourselves what was going on, keeping in mind in any other situation, we would have sent people all over creation to like look at it and see for themselves. And we couldn't in this this situation. The good news is, is we do have a very diverse membership base and customer base. So we could have people out more locally and certainly talking to people on the phone became our full-time situation. And, and making sure that information got translated back and forth, right? So what is happening on the, the river system in the U.S.? What is happening with inspections in the U.S.? How is that going to look going forward, making sure that information got overseas? And the needs that some of our customers have, we we sell, we're a large country. We produce and sell a lot of commodities to countries that cannot grow enough, even if they wanted to, of the commodities that they need. Um, they're just smaller, right? And... So those countries have a very high interest in food security, and they have developed over time systems of food security through trade. And we want to ensure them like this. This is the moment that's being tested. And I'm, I'm very proud of our staff that we were able to do that it, at the D.C. office level, you know, the headquarters office level and in the country. Turn around to our customers and say, hey, your stuff is going to get there. Let us know what you need. Do we need to intervene and try to bring together pieces of the industry, pieces of the government, whatever, if anything does go wrong and really be that bridge. And that in some ways that, that is our greatest value, right? We're working on long term demand development and reducing constraints. But when manure hits the fan, as our trade policy director sometimes says, it's good to have those connections and have somebody to call. And that staff that we have in, in our overseas offices and with that local knowledge is really those, that's those people that you call.
1: It sounds like you had the systems in place, the sort of technology in place, the existing relationships and connections in place. And it was more about putting those to use to transmit messages and information that the customers needed to know there's not going to be a disruption or at least a serious disruption in supply and exports coming out of the U.S. and getting to them.
2: Yeah. I mean, this whole situation has just made me think so much about systems. And I I think in a lot of ways, we don't want to invest in systems we don't know that we're going to use right now, right? Like we're all... Everything is so, in the modern economy, pushed towards efficiency. And the truth is, is that it was like musical chairs, right? Like the music stopped and everybody kind of had the situation they had in their personal lives, but also in our business situations. And we did have to make adjustments. I mean, there's no question about that. I think everybody did. But we also had a lot of systems that were ready to go from a technical perspective, a knowledge perspective, a human perspective. And a lot of the work initially was shifting that. Right. And as we, I think we saw the value in having those things already in place and saw the value of basically having relationships that we could, where things were not clear, we could figure out the answer. Right. And that's what a customer wants. Like, I, you know, there were a couple of days. It's like, I don't know if we can look you in the eye and say the US system is going to provide this, but we can look you in the eye and tell you we're damn well going to try. And anything that needs to happen to make that happen is a priority. As it's progressed, we, like many others, have moved to a more virtual meeting environment. So a lot of what we do on a day-to-day basis is host one-on-one meetings and conferences and educational seminars. And so much of that has now gone online. I'm not sure there's anything at this point that we haven't at least tried to put in an online format. And it's been very interesting to see where that's worked well, where it kind of hasn't worked, but also just the sheer numbers of people we're able to reach it's it's different I mean you cannot replicate an in person meeting online, especially when you're talking about livestock feed, but you can reach people uh, you know through zoom and I mean literally we will teach you how to use Zoom if you need to that it's very hard to reach geographically in some cases and so we had a big event happening not too long after all this started that did move online typically it would have been a series of conferences or a series of meetings over a certain amount of time uh, it all went into you know a zoom format or other webinar format and you know was it the same experience of course it's not the same experience being virtual versus in person but the ability to reach people that typically we might see once every few years. I mean, you just log in and see them. And the demand for information has been so high from our overseas customers, but also from our members wanting to know what's happening overseas and is demand for grain going to be there? What are you know the experiences of these customers overseas that a lot of our members have met? The demand for information both directions has just been incredible because based on trust, a lot of us, and right now we're in an environment that, you know, it's not necessarily hard to know who to trust, but it's definitely hard to know what to trust, because so many systems have been jarred in ways we just haven't experienced before.
1: One of the themes of this podcast is the importance of trust and credibility to effective communication, particularly in difficult situations, like, uh, you know, the COVID uh, pandemic that, as you said, it stresses all the systems, but it sounds like the Grains Council systems were strong and they, you responded and you've done a good job of, as I said, transmitting the messages and the information in both directions, all directions, to keep uh, everybody, well, keep the levels of trust and credibility high so that the relationships remain strong.
2: That's certainly our goal. And I think in some ways that is fundamentally different than what we would call communicating in a normal environment. And in some ways, you know, it's not. Like, that's what we're trying to do all the time is be a reliable, clear provider of information in an environment that is pretty complex and hard to understand and and that moves frequently and That's, I think that's a laudable goal at any time and an absolutely essential goal in a crisis time and, and takes, you know, a lot of coordination to do. I know one of the things you're talking about and, you know, have written about is how do you actually execute (laughs) communications during crisis? And it, I mean, it takes a good bit of work. But I think having prepared in advance is a big deal. Mm-hmm. I think we all did learn how good our systems were or weren't when this started. And we all had areas where we're like, whoops, should have paid more attention to that. And areas where it's was like, well, turns out that doesn't matter at all, you know? And I will say, you know, one thing I was very glad for is my team my communications team, we are not all in one location, even on a normal basis. And so we had worked out, I wouldn't say every way of working you could think of, you know, virtually, but pretty close. And so I think that helped us a lot, be able to support the larger organization that was feeling some of those pains. And listen, the minute we can get back on planes and go, we have staff members who travel 50, 60, 70, 80% of the time. And those guys are ready to go. And I don't think it's going to be tomorrow. I don't think it's going to be as soon as we want it to be. But I do think there's also some passion around knowing that a lot of our work over the past 60 years has been helping markets build up their own capacity and that this is a situation that is just decimating economies around the world. And that's going to impact our ability to do our work, but it's also going to create a lot of need for our work. And there's a lot of, I think, interest among our staff, among our members to get at that and to do, to offer what we can for our customers, just like we've been doing in a very, very different environment, but also again, similar to the work we've always done.
1: You mentioned preparedness as being certainly one of the core elements of best practice when it comes to crisis, but you can't wait until something hits. Being ready for it is absolutely essential. If you wait until something hits, it's too late. What other uh, best practices have you discovered uh, along the course of your career when it comes to crisis?
2: Oh, there's a, that's a whole other podcast. Um, there's two my two favorite quotes about planning though. One, Dwight Eisenhower: "Planning is everything. The plan is nothing." Right. And the second, uh, Mike Tyson: "Everyone has a plan until you get punched in the face." And I feel like if you combine those two individuals as well as philosophies, you might get to the right spot. I, I will admit I have some skepticism around what I would call like traditional crisis planning because. You know, we live in a world of complexity, right? Causes and effects do not necessarily have a relationship we can immediately ascertain. And so we need to be flexible and be prepared for what comes. And I think that's where the systems thing really comes into play. Do you know how to update your own website? A lot of people don't. You know, Do you have multiple people able to do multiple things? Do you have any resources stored off of a server? So what if you can't get into your office? Do you have a clear line of communication and decision-making in case someone is absent? Is it clear who is going to tap people to be making decisions? Do you have your spokespeople trained Do you have, you know, the ability to write basic talking points and disseminate those? Do people know who to expect that from? These are all things that personally I try to push. There's basics and, you know, there's a whole list of them, Um, but these are basic things that if you have it in place, it's not not hard to execute once you get in the moment. And, and I think having that written down is another big thing because we know when you get into a crisis scenario as humans, we lose our minds, literally. And so having a checklist and being able to click down, okay, here are the audiences we need to talk to. Have we served all of these audiences? These are the things we need to do to ensure a message gets out. Have we done all of these things? Have we put it in all of these places? Those are kind of maybe boring even tasks, but really good to have in place when something comes up that you don't see coming. And and for us, I mean, COVID fits in that category, as well as any number of trade policy issues over the last several years. We've also had, you know, some rather large internal challenges. You know, we had a CEO whose wife got very ill and he had to be out for a couple of months. Like, you don't know what's going to come up. And so, again, I think, I'm a big fan of basic preparedness and holding plans slightly, trying to prepare your system to have some ability to bounce back and to flex into challenges as much as possible and, and to have those people within it be able to bounce back and flex into those challenges as well. One thing, if anything, COVID is teaching us is there are elements that we cannot exert control over in life, right? Like there are elements of life that... Belong to systems much bigger than us, that belong to others, belong to the group. Again, I studied organization development, so I think a lot about the group and the system level of things. And we as individuals have to play our part and also have to be aware that we are, as individuals, mere actors, right? In a much larger play. And I think in a situation like this, it's important to have a good concept of what you can do as an individual and also have a concept of the impact you're having on the system. Right so we know that there are, there are certain things in our organization like when we're talking to media that we try to be cautious about because we know if we you know discuss the market in certain ways we can move markets accidentally whoops you know <laughs> That's a problem. Try not to do that. On the other hand, you know, there are certain ways, like at the beginning of COVID, where we could be a reassuring voice. And we have, you know, not only that opportunity, but we have that obligation to be honest and clear and direct as much as possible, and also help calm those particular waters with information and with that steady hand that people are looking for, where we can provide it, you know, a very narrow, narrow piece of the world gets taken care of. And so, you know, that's something I think we felt as an organization, I felt as a person at the beginning of this and still feel like, okay, well, this is our role to play. And so let's go out and play it.
1: For grains, but ag generally and trade and pointed out the role that the U.S. has played in the post-war world and creating the the Mm -hmm. world's trading system. It's important to our economy. It's important to so many farmers. It's important to so many people overseas, as you said, depend on us for- Uh, crops that they just can't grow enough of on their own so I'm glad to hear that you're doing well the organization seems to be doing well the grains uh, industry seems to be weathering this uh, well everything that's happened but especially this (laughs) this year okay and I appreciate your taking the time to talk to us about some of the communications challenges you faced and and as I said how you've met them
2: yeah, it's been, um, it's been an interesting time. I mean, agriculture is facing some very serious headwinds and farmers are optimistic people. And so we try to draw on that even in, as you kind of vaguely referenced, you know, we've got trade policy issues, we've got COVID, we've got weather problems. I mean, ag economy is not great anyway, but that's, that, that is a great lesson from farmers themselves is just like, keep going and, and try to do better. So it's a good lesson, I think, for all of us. Maybe not pleasant, but nevertheless. A, it's a good, a good
1: uh, World War II uh, re- reference. Keep calm and carry on.
2: Keep calm and carry on, yeah. I don't know. We're trying. I mean, that's <laughs> that's that's a hard one sometimes, but yep. for sure.
1: Yep. Well, you got to do it. Well, thanks. I really appreciate you taking this time. Last week, I promoted that we were going to begin to pull apart the code for trust and credibility and look at each one of the letters in turn over the course of four weeks. But then Melissa became available, and I went with that. So we'll explore the C in the code, which stands for caring and empathy, next week. And once again, a public service announcement. If you're going to vote for Joe Biden, which I hope you are, please request your mail-in ballot right away. We've got to start early to make sure the election is decided quickly after Election Day. And if you're going to vote for Donald Trump, forget what I just said. Thank you as always to Jim Cirillo at JimmyMGroot.com for the original music and to C.C. Snetsinger for the original podcast art. Send any questions you may have to WTSWTGT at gmail.com and follow us on Twitter at WTSWTGT. Until next time, always be positive. <laughs>